Luke chapter 12, verses 22 to 34. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is the word of God. Thanks so much for that, Felicity. It's great to be opening God's Word with you this morning. And if you're tuning in online, great to have you with us. I'm Jeremy. I'm one of the leaders here at church. And uh, we are in a series called Thanks Be to God, which is all on giving God thanks for His goodness, His provision, and His love for us. It's been a year where there's been plenty of things that come to mind that we are not very thankful for, gifts that we didn't ask for that maybe we, would, we wouldn't mind returning or if we could keep the receipt on them. But we are going to turn our minds to the things to be thankful for. But a couple of things are to draw to mind just at this point in the year uh, and also something to be thankful for. Tomorrow has been called Freedom Monday, which is a little bit dramatic because we haven't exactly been living in slavery. Um, but tomorrow they're calling it Freedom Monday because a whole raft of easing restrictions come in and there are a couple that affect us particularly. The first one is that from next Sunday, we can sing. Yeah, so that's pretty exciting. We can sing, and New South Wales Health is recommending face masks if you are going to sing congregationally in the building. Uh, so we want to follow through on that. The other thing is uh, the four-square-meter rule has changed to the two-square-meter rule, which means that our building will basically be back to normal capacity. And what that means for our Christmas services is, one, that we can sing carols, and two, that you can just invite. We don't have to do registrations for it. We'll still be contact tracing, so we'll still be having sign-in and thing like, things like that. But we can, our, our capacity for the building basically returns to normal. So that's something else to be thankful for, an early Christmas present in the lead-up to Christmas. So be praying about that and thinking through who it is that you might be able to share the message of the gospel with this Christmas as we lead up to, uh, to the end of the year. Now, we... Um, and we're going to dive into a text today that Felicity just read out to us, all about God's provision for His people, that God as a loving Father cares for and loves His people. And I think this is a perspective on life that one, is desperately needed, but two, if you are a follower of Jesus, is the logical conclusion of what you say you believe. 
And whether you are here or tuning in and you're someone who follows Jesus or you wouldn't consider yourself particularly religious or spiritual or whatever, this really is an issue that we need to deal with because there are two ways, in a sense, to approach life. One is the approach of anxiety and the other with the sense that God is a good provider. Let me recount to you a morning from earlier in the year. It's 3.30 and someone's calling out to me. And I mean it's 3.30 in the a.m. You know those numbers? And I go into the kid's bedroom and someone's had a nightmare. I pat his back and reassure him, but I think this is going to take forever. I'm awake now. Will I ever get back to sleep? I leave and try to go back to, get to bed. They cry out again. Don't they know how tired I am? Maybe if I just lie here and pretend to be asleep, Mel will get up and look after the kids this time. Eventually they go to sleep, but I'm wide awake. Why can't I sleep? Eventually I sleep and I wake up to the sound of the kids fighting. Why can't they even keep asleep for even one more hour? We get up to make lunches and the kids are mucking around so it takes forever to get ready to school. We just need everyone to get in the car so the day can start. And now we find out one of the kids is sick. This is going to ruin everything. Who's the one who's going to stay back from work? Who's the one who's going to look after the kids? How are we going to manage the day? All of this is so frustrating. This is the worst possible day for someone to get sick. Why can't they stay well for even a month? But let's rewind it and run that morning through again in a different way. It's 3.30 and someone's calling out to me. I go into the kid's bedroom and someone's had a nightmare. I pat his back and I reassure him. And as I look at him, I think, he looks so much like me. Nightmares can be so confusing for a kid. It must feel so good to have dad come in like this. I'm glad I get to be a dad and I'll miss these moments when he's a teenager and no longer reaches out to me like this. I wonder if this is how God feels when we call out to him for help. I crawl back into bed, but I'm wide awake now, and I start reading a book about an old preacher to slow myself down, and I'm thankful for the moment I have in the quiet just to reflect on a bit of, on a bit of narrative. They get up in the morning, and I think what a beautiful sound to hear the kids who are all healthy, safe, and well, and the reminder it is of God's good provision. As we get ready for the morning, I'm thankful for the fact that we have enough food to give the kids and we never worry about what they're going to eat for lunch or what they'll have or what they'll wear. One of the kids is sick, and I know that means one of, them, one of us will have to stay home. What a blessing it is to have them curl up next to us and want to spend time with us. Even the fact that I doubt sometimes whether or not they're telling the truth is because I know they'd rather spend time at home with us. What a blessing it is to have them around. God is a good provider. Those are two possible ways to run through the exact same morning. Objectively on the surface, it looks exactly the same, and yet subjectively the experience can be entirely different. And I would love to say that the normal run-of-the-mill course is the second one, but it's usually the first. The first one is riddled with the sense of all the things that I'm going to miss out on, all the worries, all the concerns, all the difficulties. And the second one is with the sense of God's good provision and supervision looking after me and shaping my day. And really, these are two ways, according to this passage, to do life. It can either be framed by anxiety and worry and the fear of what will come or what we'll miss out on, or with a sense of God's generous provision. And I would say in Sydney that the first one is absolutely the default. 
I was even reminded of this this morning. When I, when I went to do a simple kind of regular task of getting a coffee, I went and ordered it, and when it came to me, the barista said, sorry for the wait. And it had been five minutes. And as I thought on that, I thought, the beans for this coffee have come from South America, and the milk has come from somewhere in rural New South Wales, and at 8.55, I decided I wanted a coffee, and at 9 o'clock, I had one, and he apologized for the wait. Something is very wrong about the way that we frame life. Because the way that we frame life is mostly through the lens of, what am I missing out on? What are other people getting that I'm not? Have I been ripped off? Have I been given a bad deal? But Luke 12 says, if you follow Christ, the truth is, you are, your life is supervised by a loving Heavenly Father who is generously providing for you. And so my prayer is that as we open God's Word this morning, that he would give us that second and deeper perspective. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word opens our eyes and hearts to the truth and reality of life under your supervision, under your care, under your sovereign rule. And Father, as we open your word, may you show us and lead us into lives that fully submit to your rule that see that you are generously and faithfully providing for our needs, that we might give you praise. And we pray all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Well, Luke 12 starts with a command from Jesus to not worry. Look what it says in Luke 12, 22. We open it up to this. It says, And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. So Jesus says to his followers, these are his disciples who've been sitting under his teaching for a time. He says to them, don't be anxious about these things. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you'll wear. And he's talking to a crowd who are mostly living day to day. So they don't have provisions stored up for the remainder of the year. They're not making five-year plans. The majority of the people that Jesus is preaching to have enough for the next day and maybe if they're doing really well for the next week. And so the two biggest concerns for them, of course, are going to be, what am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? What do I do if my clothes wear out? What do I do if my food runs out? And he says to them, don't worry about these things. Now, that's not particularly helpful advice, is it? To just say to someone who is worried legitimately about things, just don't worry about it, is not very helpful counsel. If you were to say to someone who's deeply in debt, don't be in debt. Debt's dumb. Just be rich. Just have lots of money. I don't know what you're doing with your life. That's not very helpful counsel. To say to someone who's stressed, don't be stressed, just be more chill about everything. And then that's it. It's not actually very helpful because, of course, they don't want to be in this state, but they are. So Jesus doesn't actually just leave it there. He tells them, he gives them a command, but then he backs it up with sound reasoning. Look what it says next. In Luke 12, 25, he says, And which of you... By being anxious can add a single hour to the span of life. If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Now this is a fair point. Jesus effectively says that anxiety is just sideways energy. He says, Don't, who of you by worrying has been able to add an hour to your life? Who of you sat down, stressed yourself out, and then found at the end of that, I think I'm going to live longer? In fact, we know scientifically that the more you're worried and stressed you are, the shorter your life gets. So it obviously goes the other way. 
Jesus is saying here, it's useless. It's not enjoyable. It doesn't help you with the thing that you're anxious about. So he says it's not, it's not a very helpful thing to just sit there in your anxiety about things and worry and stress. And that's a helpful reasoning. He says you can't add a single hour to your life. It can't add life, and all it does is make the one that you're living worse, so don't be anxious. Now that's sound reasoning, but of course that's still not necessarily all that helpful if you are feeling anxious about something. The fact that we know that it's a waste sometimes even makes it worse because you think, I, I know I hate being like this. I hate worrying about stuff all the time, but I don't seem to be able to make myself stop. We all get anxious. And when you worry about being anxious, you can sit there and you can be anxious about something and then be anxious about being anxious about something. And it just doubles up. What you need is a very solid reason to calm down. And see, often, even though our anxiety won't help us solve the problem, we still sit there with it and spin our wheels. But to really deal with it, you need something actually more solid than the knowledge that anxiety is just futile, that it's a waste of time. Look at what Jesus says. He gives a very solid grounding as to why not to be anxious. He says, Luke 12, 27 to 30, Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. So Jesus makes a case from nature here. He says, look, just look around you. See that, that raven over there. And in their culture, a raven was considered an ugly bird. If I were to give you an updated equivalent, we're talking about an ibis, a bin chicken. And imagine Jesus is standing around. He says, look at that ugly bird. I made that for a joke, and it got through. And look, even those birds are fine. They find stuff in the trash, and they just eat whatever. Look, God even looks after them, and he makes the case that, he says, look, if God even provides for that part of his creation, how much more for you, who are the only life in the universe made in the image of God that lives forever. He says, if God looks after even those things, of course he will look after you. Of course he loves you. Of course he will provide for you. He's your heavenly father. And so Jesus gives a living illustration to say, look, creation itself, before you even open the Bible, creation is telling you that there is a creator God who provides for his creation. And now I tell you the word of God do not worry, because your Heavenly Father knows what you need, and He will provide for you. And what's even more profound is as you think about who's saying this, this is Jesus, God in flesh, the Word dwelt among us, telling His people God will provide for you, whilst being a living illustration of God's provision for His people. Isn't this why in the Gospel of John, Jesus calls Himself the bread of life? And says, whoever eats of me will never hunger again. God knows even our deepest need, not just our physical needs, but our spiritual needs. Jesus is there because our deepest need was to have the issue of sin and death dealt with so that we might be set free. God has provided for our very deepest need. He's dealt with our separation from him through sin. 
He's dealt with the wrath of God against unrighteousness in Jesus, and he's made a way to life eternal. And Jesus is standing there saying, I am a living illustration of the fact that God will provide for your every need. He will look after you. You will be okay. And if God can look after the very question of life and death itself, then he can look after everything else in between. It's going to be okay, even if things aren't okay in this life. If God, through Jesus, has dealt with death, then there is nothing left to fear. Isn't that the case that at the bottom of all fears, ultimately, is the fear of death? I heard one psychologist describe it this way, that at the, a lot of people are afraid of spiders. And in our house, our kids are terrified of spiders, even just little daddy long legs and things like that. So we get a lot of call-outs in the middle of the night to come and sort out a spider or, or things like that. But occasionally we get a huntsman through, which is genuinely pretty anxiety-producing. But most of the time they're pretty just, you know, they're garden spiders or run-in-the-mill sort of spiders. But at the bottom of the fear of spiders, which is a, a reasonably common one, is what? The fear of sickness and death, ultimately. Fears about money or even status or other things are at the bottom of them. The fear is the sense that I will lose my life. Once that is dealt with, every other fear kind of gets relativized. That doesn't mean that they immediately go away, but to trust in God means that we have reasonable grounding to deal with genuine fears. If he can deal with the ultimate fear, the fear of death, the fear of standing before God under judgment, if that's done with, then we can trust him that he'll provide for all our needs. And this is the reason not to be anxious. It's anchored in the historical person and work of Jesus. It's not in some sentimental phrases or in some clever sayings. It's with who Jesus actually was and what he did. And so because of that, we can say, in the end, I have indestructible life at work in me. And this relativizes all other fear. And this understanding is foundational to thankfulness Because anxiety or worry kills gratitude, doesn't it? If there is one thing that will kill gratitude, gratefulness, however you want to put it, thankfulness, it's worry, it's anxiety. Being anxious about things leads us away from thankfulness. And it's because anxiety always brings with it a confirmation bias, doesn't it? It always looks for problems rather than provision. And Jesus in this passage is trying to draw our minds to God's provision, his constant providing for us. But anxiety always looks for problems rather than provision. And this is because even even in terms of our bodies, anxiety triggers a response that is looking for threats and issues and problems. So once we feel worried about something, we are actively looking for all the things that are wrong. How do I protect myself or secure my life? It leads us to be a people who are always worried that God won't come through. And we always look for all the ways that he hasn't provided the things that we need. And it leads us to miss all the regular ways in which he does provide. Remember when you were a kid and you used to, either you got tricked or you used to trick other kids with this, when you were deciding something, you'd say, let's, let's flip a coin about it. And then you'd say it quickly before they could think about it. You'd say, heads I win, tails you lose. And then you flip the coin. And if they were younger or uninitiated, they wouldn't realize that no matter which way you flip the coin, that's a win for you. But I often think when it comes to God's provision, we can be a little bit heads I win, tails you lose. We pray for something, he provides, and then it kind of just goes in the account and we forget about it. But we pray for something and God says no or wait, and we are in the face of God straight away. How could you not? 
You know what I need. You know I need this and I need it now. But it's heads I win, tails you lose. Our attention is drawn more to the times when we have to wait or when we get a no than when God regularly and consistently and faithfully provides for our needs. Our minds are drawn to those times because we're driven by the fear of missing out. We're driven by the fear of things going wrong. And God's people have always had this issue. In Hosea 13.6, God takes issue with his people and says to them, I fed you until you were satisfied, and in your satisfaction you forgot me. And isn't that the pattern of our lives? That God provides, 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 and in our satisfaction we forget him. Anxiety leads to thanklessness. Because it also leads to just consumption. Isn't that at the bottom of things, a big fear that drives people... Because in our culture, we don't live day to day and we don't live week to week often. As difficult as this year even has been, and look, on the world scale of things, again, Australia absolutely got away with it, didn't we? But even, even in a year like this, most people still have enough for the few weeks coming or even months coming. We don't tend to live day to day or week to week. But the fear that drives us most often is the fear that I'm going to miss out on something that there's an opportunity or there's something good or there's some kind of, something that will be central to living a happy life that I will miss out on. And what it leads us to be is a people who just consume constantly. We're trying to not miss out on anything, so we are consuming things regularly and constantly. That's just a small way I've seen it happen in my life. I remember when I was a kid, and I'm sure a lot of you can relate to this, you used to hang for the next skate video to come out but the thing was, the, the scene was so small back then that really there was only a couple of videos that came out a year. And they're on, they're on VHS. Anyway, but so I would, I would watch those things until like, and you may not remember this, especially if you were sort of pre-VHS, but I would watch those things until it was glitching and there were lines coming down the screen. I would just flog them. In fact, I watched them so regularly that every skate park would come with a song and I, now, when I hear those songs, I can immediately visualize exactly what was happening in the clips. That's how regularly I watch them. Now, I don't obviously have as much time to keep up with what's happening in the skate scene at the moment, but things, footage is dropping so regularly that I just, I'll watch something once and I'm done with it. Because I'm worried if I watch it again, I'm going to miss out on the next one that's coming out. And, and people have talked about it. It's changed the whole way that people watch videos. Because previously, you would just kind of savor one video and watch it over and over and over again. But now, you do one thing and then it's done. It's the same with music or multiple other scenes, right? You listen to something and then you move on to the next thing. Because the fear is, I'm going to miss out on something. And so we move through life consuming and consuming, driven by this fear that I'm going to miss out on something, and never stopping to say thanks and never stopping to reflect, and never stopping to think on God's provision. In this passage, Jesus is saying to these people, don't worry, don't be anxious, God is a provider. And you need to stop and consider his provision. Right there with his group of disciples, he says, just stop a minute. Look around, look at how God provides for what's around you, and just consider that you have a heavenly Father who loves you and is a generous provider. As the people of God... We are called to stop and say thank you. Can I encourage you this week to just follow up on one traditional Christian habit that has been around for I, I don't know how long. I don't know if anyone knows or would be able to find out how long it's been around for. But if you are if you are just listening in or visiting and you didn't grow up in a church culture, you may still have heard of people 
who say grace before dinner. Now, even our graces, we just rush through. And we say things like, bless it to our bodies. No one knows what it means, but it's provocative. It gets the people going, right? But no one knows, like, bless it to your bodies. It's not there in Scripture. We don't know exactly what it means, but it's Christian-y, and it's, you know, it's about the food or whatever. But oftentimes, it's become a habit. The, the reason the habit is there is that before you eat, you would stop and think, God has provided this, and not only has he provided this, he's provided all we need for our souls. But we often have a set saying that we say with grace or whatever so that we don't have to think about it because we've optimized every part of life, and we speed through it, and we don't actually do what the habit is meant to do, which is to stop and reflect on God's provision. So I'd give you the challenge to just stop and take something simple like an apple and think, wow, God could have made all apples gray, and he could have made them taste like wheat picks, and they don't. Wheat picks only came in after the fall, by the way, if you're wondering. <laughs> but take an apple and just think, God made each of these distinct, even in terms of their color. And not only that, none of them are perfectly round. Each of them has their own shape. And when I bite into them, it's a lottery, because sometimes they're great and sometimes they're not, but that's part of the fun. And God could have made me without taste buds, but instead I can tell when an apple is slightly sour or bitter or sweeter or whatever it is. And to stop and give thanks for the gift of just having an apple. I mean, imagine what impact it would have if we just did that and slowed down and just said grace properly before a meal and considered the truth of Luke 12. Because the truth is, we even eat in a hurry. Most of our meals, apparently, statistically, we eat alone. Or we take lunch at our desk. And we just smash through it. It's just something that we do. And we forget that it's a little spark of God's generous provision each day. We're called to stop and consider these things. Even consider the gift of rain, which we so often consider a curse because we live in the city. People in the, in the rural areas don't consider it in the same way, or at least not all the time. But just think of this. Reading this recently on a blog post about being thankful for rain, John Piper remarks, <clears throat> when one inch of rain falls on one square mile of farmland, so just do the math, <clears throat> that would be 8,497,336 cubic meters of water, which is 780 million liters and about 768 million kilos of water. And in order to get this life-giving liquid, all of it has to evaporate out of the Pacific. It becomes gas. And then water starts becoming water again by gathering around little dust particles between 0, 0, 0, 0, 1 and, 0, 0, 0, and 0.001 centimeters. So just that's very small. <laughs> and in order for this to fall without crushing crops and destroying them, they coalesce together and form little droplets that can stay together and not evaporate over a mile or so that they have to fall. And all of this, uh, they fall in tiny droplets on the land and give life instead of death. This is just an everyday miracle. Last night it happened. It came and it went. And probably none of us paid attention to it. And it's a short reminder of God's generous provision. We have a generous provider in God. But we could go on. We have sunshine. Praise God we don't live in the UK or Seattle or Portland or anywhere like that. For creation, for the beach. Beaches that are actually worth going to, unlike most of the world. It's incredible that it's there. For clothes. But most are not worried about what I'm going to wear tomorrow or the day after or the day after that. For the bodies that God has given us that really are largely in good health and able to help us to engage with the creation that God has given us. 
We have a generous provider. And so we're called to be thankful, but I think not just thankful, but also generous. Look how the passage rounds out. In Luke 12, 31 to 34, it says this, And do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sow your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The reminder at at the end of this passage is that if you are a follower of Jesus, you have treasure in heaven. That your life, the life you are living for, is not ultimately the one that you're living right now, but what it will be with him in eternity forever in the new creation. Where it will not be a struggle to remember that you have a generous provider God. Where you will live in immediately obvious abundance. And we are called to remember that day with the little habit that reminds us that all our stuff is not here, the habit of generosity. See, the implication that Jesus is drawing from this passage is not just that we should draw our minds to the generous provision of God and be thankful for what we have, but to show that this stuff is not our treasure by enjoying giving some of it away. And when Jesus says here, sell your possessions and give to the needy, what he's saying is to a group of people who don't have bank accounts, obviously, at the time, and if you wanted to liquefy your assets, you had to sell them so that you could get money for them and then pass that money on. What he's saying is that if you're a follower of Jesus, it should cut into your lifestyle. There should be things that you miss out on. For them, it meant selling the actual possessions in your house. There was a visible reminder. But wherever we are as the people of God, we will be called to sacrifice some things that we might find enjoyment in in order that we might find joy in other people's, enjoy, in other people's joy. That we might enjoy the joy of God in being generous. We are to be thankful for things, but not to treasure them. And as Christmas comes up, I mean, the whole point of doing this series was that we wouldn't miss Christmas. And every year, the tradition of giving gifts, although obviously it's been gobbled up by a whole you know, consumer industry, was, is really meant to celebrate the idea of generosity. That you think as the ultimate gift was given to us at Christmas in Jesus, so we give little gifts as a reminder of the generosity of God. What a thing it would be to do this year to be more thankful for how he's provided and in doing so, actually enjoy giving things away in providing for the needs of others. That as we come up to Christmas, we might, as Jesus says here, remember the poor. One very simple way that we can be doing that, I mean, last week, uh, Dad got up here and mentioned hands and feet and the, uh, the hampers that we're looking to give away on the 14th. And maybe that's just one small way you might be able to provide for others' needs and just in a small way give a glimpse of the gospel in God's generosity working through his people as you give to people who you may never even see or know but that you want to provide for because God has so generously provided for you. And the box is up the back there. If you want any more details about it, you can check the Facebook group or speak to me or, or Dad afterwards. But it would be a great way to be generous this Christmas. 
But maybe there are other ways you could be more creative. Or if you have family and kids that you want to lead in this teaching, to actually sit down with this passage and consider as a family how it is you might be generous over Christmas. How Christmas might not be a time of thinking about what, all the things that we're going to get, but how it is that we might show the generosity of God in giving away. Because what Jesus says here is, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And when we hear that phrase, we tend to think what we spend on will reveal our hearts. But it's a double-edged sword. When Jesus says, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also, it goes both ways. It's true that how we spend will reveal what we prioritize. But it's also true that what you spend actively shapes your desires as you're spending, doesn't it? One... one, um, Uh, leader Randy Alcorn says I've often heard people say I want more of a heart for missions I always respond Jesus tells you exactly how to get it from this passage he says put money in mission and your heart will follow what we spend on actually shapes the desires of our heart what we give to transforms the desires of of our heart as we do it so as we consider how to be more thankful in the lead up to Christmas Maybe a question to consider is, who is it that God is putting in our hearts to be more generous toward? How is it that we might steward our finances, even if it has been a difficult year this year, in a way that shows the generosity of God in a small way? Because the call of this passage is that God is a generous provider. And this leads us not just to thankfulness, but to thankfulness overflowing in generosity. May he continue to transform our hearts so that we would be a thankful and generous people this December. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are so good, so generous, and so faithful. And Father, we just pray that we would remember your generous provision for us. That you would, by your Spirit, give us power to see all the ways that you provide for us. Even as we sit here in a building, able to gather together safely, that we would remember that you have provided this. That you are the God who has given us all that we need. And Father, we pray that this would make us a thankful people, a loving people, and a generous people. And Father, may you be putting on our hearts even now who it is that you are calling us to be generous to, that we might be actively shaping our hearts towards kingdom desires, a desire to see you glorified in our lives, and to find deep joy in you. And Father, we pray all of this for the sake of your holy name.